How are we doing, table friends? For our friends who are speaking Espanol, como están? Muy bien? Bueno. Now in Portuguese, someone help me out. Tudo bem? I'm, I'm out at that point, sorry. Uh, all I can say is like, don't go Argentina. That's my only comeback, sorry. Sorry if you're from Argentina, I was just trying to be you know, really Brazilian. Hey, hey, if we haven't met, my name is Doug. Uh, I'm the young adult pastor here. Give leadership to our young adults. If you're figuring out, what is a young adult? It's anyone somewhere between college and mortgage, uh, right? That's kind of this crowd right here. You're like, rent is how much in Orlando? Cool, I'll sleep in a box. That's, uh, that's what we'll do. Uh, and so those of you who are here, you probably fit that profile. Really glad you're here. I'm sorry, except for Zach, who just bought a house. Can we, can we give Zach a round of applause for being a big boy and just buying a house? Good job, Zach. Nice job. Um, yeah, uh, so I give leadership to young adults here. Really glad you've chosen to gather with us. We are in the midst of a, a multi-week message series called Nine Items or Less. And the whole idea behind the series, if you haven't uh, been here with us, is, you know, we just have this idea of the, the shopping cart. You know, most of us uh, who are young adults, we uh, head to the Publix. How many of you are public shoppers? I'm just curious. Okay. How many of you are like, that's too bougie? I go to Walmart. Wait, wait, wait for it. No, don't spoil. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How many of you are like, Walmart's too bougie? Aldi. Okay, there we go. How many of you say, Aldi is too bougie, I go dumpster diving? Where are we at? Okay, no shame in your game. Okay, anyway. Young adults, you get hungry. You know, maybe if you're living on your own for the first time, mom or dad doesn't cook food for you. Right? And so you're like, I gotta go to the store, I gotta make a list, I gotta plan ahead. What? You go to the store and you get the cart and you only put the things because we're on a limited budget, except for Zach, who's made of money. Um, we, we get the things that are essential for us, we put them in the cart, right? Well, and, and then we go to the checkout thing and we check out. This is how we get food. And the metaphor we've been walking with is that there are these things in life that are essential to us. This cart is like our life. And we're all asking as young adults with limited resources, what are the essential things we've got to put into the cart of our lives? And the Bible has this term, this, this group of things, these virtues called the fruit of the Spirit. And what the Apostle Paul tells us is that these are the nine essential things you should put in the cart of your life. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that as you follow Jesus, these are things that uh, they, they are fruit, they, they bloom in your life. They're, they're the result of this work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. And we've been looking at each one of them up to this point. Uh, as you can, if you've been with us, you know that all of them are defined in terms of love. Love is the super fruit that defines all the rest of the fruit. And today we're going to look at a, a, one particular one. So if you have Bibles, open up to Galatians 5. We're going to start there or turn on, swipe over to Galatians 5, and we'll flip around a little bit. Uh, but to set this up, I want to talk about reading books. So last week I had this really great uh, opportunity to go to Texas with Isaac. So we were on a plane going to Texas. Texas is where we're both from. It's God's country. There's Whataburger in Texas, um, which is God's banquet table where you go and you get the deliciousness that is a Whataburger, the Dr. Pepper milkshake, the taquito. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, get to Jacksonville Stats, the closest Whataburger, and just make it happen. But we went to Texas. I had this plane flight. I had all this free time, so I downloaded a new book on the Kindle, uh, and I started reading it, and it was incredible. And I, I, now, I'm, I'm about to be a 38-year-old man. I'm a father of 
two, I have a wife, I've got a job, I've got hobbies, um, but it's, it's hard to read. Um, you guys don't know this now because you have plenty of time. You can just read all you want. I, I don't get to read as much as I would like to, so I got to sit down uninterrupted time on a plane reading a book, and it was amazing. And this amazing concept emerged in this book that I was reading uh, called The Truth Default Theory, which I won't get to the extensiveness of this, but basically what social scientists have discovered is that human beings are hardwired to believe in something. Human beings have a compulsive need to believe in something. We have a need to believe in some object. Now, belief always requires an object. You can't just believe. I'm sorry, Journey. You can't just believe generally. Belief requires an object. It requires a prepositional phrase. You believe in something. And as human beings, we need to believe in something because if we don't have anything to believe in from an evolutionary perspective, and I don't want to get into the faith and science debate here, but I'm just saying from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense if human beings don't believe in something, they become depressed and hopeless. And so in order to protect themselves, human beings are hardwired to believe in something, and it follows that everybody believes in something, and the philosophical question emerges from this. Uh, what object out there among all the possible objects are worthy of my belief? Have you ever thought about this before? There's lots of different things to believe in. Some of us believe in sports teams, right? College football, Alabama, right? Always got to talk like that. Alabama, right? Bama, go Bama, roll tide. Uh, Auburn, if you're on the other side of the state, right? Florida, Florida State, UCF, go Knights, charge on. 2017 national champs. Uh, uh, if you're from Texas, Baylor University, Forno, Sikkim Bears, right? Whatever your college team is, maybe you have a soccer squad, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, uh, Chile, whatever, right? Uh, maybe you like the European League, Barcelona, uh, Chelsea, maybe you like, you know, whatever. Maybe you don't like sports. Maybe you believe in a political party, right? You have this political party you believe in. You have a political candidate you believe in, right? Some of us believe in ideas. We believe this idea can change the world. But what follows is all of us have this compulsive need to believe in something. And many of us who are gathered here, what we've chosen to believe in is Jesus, we believe in Jesus Christ as the truth. And there's something about that that for many of us who are here today, that's very comforting and meaningful and fills us with hope, which is why it bothers us so much when people stop believing, especially when they stop believing in Jesus. Now, if you've been following the news, uh, this past year has seen a number of very high-profile Christians who have publicly stopped believing in Jesus, and they've taken to social media to display this. And I think the reason that that bothers us so much, when, when high-profile Christians come out and they post, hey, I no longer believe in Jesus, is because what it indicates is that they have a capacity in them. Even though they were pastors and leaders in the church, they have a capacity in them to stop believing and therefore willingly choose to step into hopelessness. And if they have a capacity to do that, then we all kind of instinctively realize that we also might have that same capacity to stop believing in something and therefore step into hopelessness. And so whenever they come out, it just rocks, uh, rocks us a little bit. I, the Christian world, when there's a famous pastor named Josh Harris, who wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Are any of you old enough to at least remember I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Okay, thank you. So when I became a Christian in 1997, when the day Alec was born, um, 
It was really popular in my youth group, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. The premise of this book that Josh Harris wrote when he was like 20 years old is Christians should not date. They should court. They should court other, you know, people in large friendship groups. And then suddenly by some mystical mumbo jumbo, they arrive at the altar. And they're like, oh, I'm marrying you? Cool. Uh, And then... They get married, right? And that's the only God-blessed way to date. And this was really popular. And Josh Harris became a famous megachurch pastor in Maryland. Went on book tours, wrote multiple books, was very prominent, blogged, was leading a movement. And then all of a sudden, for 2019, for him to be able to come out and say, I no longer believe in Jesus, this person that I used to lead other people to do, it rocked a lot of Christians. Because they realized if he has capacity to stop believing, I might have capacity to stop believing. And now, man, I might end up hopeless, and I don't want to be hopeless. For some of us who are here today, this is not just an ethereal thing. Maybe for you, you've experienced it in your personal life. What's it like when someone closest to me stops believing? Maybe for you, it was a parent. One of your parents got a divorce or stopped going to church, maybe you went to college, maybe you started a career thing, and then they texted you one day, and you said, how's church? And they said, oh, I'm not going to church anymore. And you go, what do you mean? You took me to church all the time. You made me go on Sundays. You made me dress up. You did the whole thing on my cowlick. Like, what do you mean you're not going to church anymore? Oh, I, I just don't believe in Jesus anymore. And you have that moment where you go, if they have capacity to not believe, maybe I have a capacity to not believe, and I'm going to end up hopeless. Maybe for others of you, it was a friend that you grew up with and you encouraged one another to follow Jesus in your high school years. Maybe your middle school years, you did the thing where you like fell in love with a boy and you started writing his name as your last name, right, in your little prayer journal situation. Or maybe y'all are all in the digital age, so it was just in a chat room somewhere like, oh, he's the right. And you did the emoji, whatever, the ring emoji, and you did that thing. And then you kind of went to your career and she went to her career. And then one day you find out she doesn't believe in Jesus anymore. And you're going, maybe I won't believe in Jesus anymore. Maybe for others of you, it was a neighbor, a distant family member. Maybe it's someone who was in a life group with you. Maybe it's someone you know at the table as part of this and stop believing in Jesus. And you had that moment where you're in crises. Maybe I'm going to end up hopeless. The good news that Paul wants to tell us today is that there's this fruit of the Spirit called faithfulness. And God baked it into the Christian community as a safeguard against hopelessness. And it's the good news I want us to look at here today. So if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 5, we'll read it. I'm going to kind of wax theological for a little bit. I want to I just kind of break it apart, and then we're going to look at it philosophically, and then I'm going to make it really practical at the end, try to tell some stories to keep us all awake. Are we good so far, table fam? I know it's October, right? I know it's October. Some of us are getting into the doldrums of October, simultaneously going, I'm tired at work, and when is it going to cool, cool down? Like, uh, when is it going to hit 60? I'm, I'm, I'm ready anytime, Jesus. Come to Orlando. Thank you. <laughs> Stay with me here. I think we can get through this. Here we go. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It'll be on your screen if you don't have anything to look at. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness is a term we're looking at here today. What is faithfulness? Faithfulness is the Greek word pistis. It's actually the word we get from where we get, it's the term from where we get the word faith. Uh, You see it in Ephesians 2 when Paul is writing and says, um, we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of our own works, it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. This idea that you have faith in Jesus, that you, it's really the idea for belief. I believe in something. 
Okay? That's that word pistis. Faithfulness really means the faithfulness of your belief system. Uh, Or a better terminology, if we're going to define it in terms of love, is this. Faithfulness is the consistency with with which our love behaves. Let me say that again. Faithfulness is the consistency with which love behaves. Belief, if you're not aware of this, it's behavior. Belief is not an idea. Belief is actually the idea put into motion. It's behavior. And so when you say you believe in an object over here, what you're saying is, I am behaving increasingly towards this object. Whatever I see the object doing, I'm imitating. Belief is working out this kind of idea you have of this thing over here. Belief behaves. And a faithful belief, faithfulness, is a consistent way of behaving in light of this ethic of love. It's saying, I see how love and flesh and bones operates, and I'm going to imitate it with consistency. Faithfulness is the consistency with which love behaves. Now, it's really interesting with that definition in mind to consider all the ways that faithfulness, this idea of pistis, works its way out both in the New Testament and the Old Testament in its Old Testament version. And so I want you to just look at two cross-references, and I want to have a little bit of a theological experiment here with us. So just get your minds ready to think a little bit here. Um, In the New Testament, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, we have this verse from Proverbs 28.20, and notice what we see about faithfulness. It says this, A faithful man or woman will abound with blessings, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. God can express, I'm sorry, in this situation, humans can express faithfulness. So, Whenever faithfulness is used here, it's used in terms of a man. Um, We can be faithful. Human beings can express, uh, can behave in a consistent ethic of love. Humans can express faithfulness. But look at this other cross-reference in 1 Corinthians with Paul's writing again. He writes this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Any of us who have ever struggled with sexual temptation have quoted this at different times, right? Right? By that, I mean I've quoted this a lot, especially when I was in your, you know, your situation there. I'm married now, so I just make out with my wife all the time. Sorry, that's too far. Let me back off. I'm not tempted anymore. I just move forward. <sighs> Here we go. I'm just saying, get married. That's how that works. Anyway, uh, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But, but notice this next verse in all seriousness. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So not only are we described as faithful, God is described as faithful. How in the world does that work? How can God demonstrate faithfulness and how can we demonstrate faithfulness? Here's the good news about faithfulness. Okay, All of us are asking What should I believe in? What should be the object of my belief? Everybody is preconditioned and hardwired to believe in something. It's a compulsive need so that we can survive in this world. We're always looking which object is worthy of my belief. Which object is worthy of my belief? I'm looking at all these objects. Is this one? Is it this one? Is it this one? I need an object to believe in. And again, for some of us, we believe in sports. But believing in sports actually doesn't produce a very consistent person. Have you noticed this? When your team wins... You're tolerable. You ever been around a, like an Alabama fan after they won like their 25th national championship in a row? 
They're like, well, they're obnoxious, but I guess they're tolerable. They're just like, roll tide, roll tide, roll tide, roll tide. Hey, roll tide, roll tide. They're texting everybody all the time, roll tide. It's just like emojis of elephants. You're just like, what's going on here? Or like when Florida fans win or when UCF wins national championships, right? Anytime, you guys are not picking up on this UCF thing. There's a strong anti-UCF bias in this room. I just see a lot of people going, what? Keep talking. Um, Listen, when your team wins, when your sports team wins, you're tolerable. When your sports team loses, you're miserable, right? It's incredibly inconsistent to believe in a sports team. You become an incredibly inconsistent up and down person. The same is true with politics. Your party wins, you're tolerable. You're obnoxious. You're like, yeah, yeah, well, I should have voted for her, bud. Should have voted for him, bud. Should have, right? Your party loses, and you're just like, the world is ending. Everything is the worst, right? It makes you an incredibly inconsistent person. You believe in an idea. An idea is abstract. Uh, it just makes you a really boring person to be around. No offense, I'm a guy who loves ideas. But if you believe in an idea and you really champion it, you're the person at the party where everyone's like, hey, have you seen this movie? And you're like, actually, I don't watch movies. But uh, I was reading this journal article the other day, and it's really fascinating. And the only reason I say that is because that's me. And I see the way you guys look at me whenever I talk about ideas. Y'all are like, Doug, time out. I'm giving you 30 seconds on that idea. Then I'm going to go talk to somebody who has actually seen the new Downton Abbey movie, and we're going to talk, okay? You stay over there in the corner with your ideas, right? People who believe in ideas, we get really boring. So we have to ask that idea, hey, what is the best thing for us to believe in? What is really worthy of my belief? And the idea of God being faithful, as expressed in 1 Corinthians 13, is this idea that God is worthy of our belief. He is faithful to us. He faithfully, he consistently behaves in a lovely way towards us. Which is why Paul writes, we are saved not by our works. We don't initiate the salvation. The object that is the only object in the universe that's worthy of our belief and our affection actually loves us in the most consistent way possible. And even when we reject him, and even when we reject him, and even when we turn away, he continually loves us and he loves us and he loves us until we go, oh my goodness, this, this being must be worthy of my affection and my belief system. And so we turn and we begin to believe in him. And we come to discover that he's the only one who is worthy of our affection. And so we begin to believe in him in increasingly consistent ways. And that's how we demonstrate faithfulness back to him. And here's the thing. This is the good news of faithfulness found in the New Testament. And it's this. Jesus is the only object of belief who will give us more love. And Jesus is the only object of belief who will make us a more loving person to be around. Why? Because he's the only one who can love in a consistent, faithful way. And as we observe his consistent love towards us, we give that consistent love increasingly back towards him, and we have this light bulb moment. This is the way I should love everybody around me. And so you begin to love everybody around you in a kind, in a gentle, in a patient way. And everyone who is ever around you and sees how consistently you behave with respect to love towards them says the same thing about you, which is this. That is one of the most faithful friends I have. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those faithful friends, they're always there. You text them, two in the morning, I'm having a bad dream. 
they're like, hold on, let me wake up. And then they text with you for a while. You're like, man, you're really kind to text with me, you know, all night. And you're like, well, I love you. And you, you kind of hang up, turn the phone over so the screen light doesn't keep you awake. And you go, that is a really faithful friend. Do you know how really faithful friends learn to be really faithful friends? Probably because they learned it from a really faithful God. Jesus is the only object in the universe who, when we believe in him, he gives us more love and makes us more loving to others. And that's the good news of faithfulness. Faithfulness, just to repeat, pistis. It is the consistency with which love behaves. And as you believe in Jesus, he will supernaturally make you more faithful, both towards him and towards everyone around you. Now, with that defined, what does it look like to cultivate this idea of faithfulness in our own lives? How, how can I work on cultivating that more? If I'm already thinking right now, and I'm seeing some of you guys are kind of struggling with this, you're like, I'm not currently very faithful towards this object. I don't know if I'm faithful to other people. Is there any way I can cultivate this more in my life? And the answer is yes. And so I want to spend some time philosophically talking about this. Uh, and just to set it up, I want to talk to you about this thing I found in my car. Um, now, occasionally I will buy things at the store. You see where this is going, okay? And I have kids. I get distracted. I'm on the phone. I'm like, oh, the Cubs didn't make the playoffs. And then I get despondent um, because that's how Cubs fans are. Um, and uh, anyway, so I bought some milk. And I was like, okay, I'll bring that home and put it in the back seat. And then I didn't bring it home for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And so you pull it out, and what do all of us do whenever we see milk and we have that moment where we look at the expiration date and we go, ooh. Uh, right? We all do the same thing, right? You don't just throw it away. You have to smell it. It's the sniff test. You go, oh, yeah, that is definitely bad. That, wow, that's foul smelling. But you can't just put it in the trash, right? Because it'll smell up your house. So you have to do what? Pour it in the sink. And if you ever looked at expired milk as you pour it, I'm not going to do it here. Some of you are like already guarding yourself. No, I'm going to do that, right? I'll put the lid back on. You pour it in the sink, and if you watch, what happens? It comes out chunky. There's an inconsistency to it. And this is what it's like to not be faithful. It's to be inconsistent in the way that you love. Okay? And so I want to spend some time talking about what consistent love looks like, what faithfulness looks like. And when we're not this way, what I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, uh, you can tell if you're ever being inconsistent in your love towards your object, in your belief in your object. Because just like spoiled milk, everyone around you can smell it, okay? You know this. you got friends who are inconsistent in their belief ethic. You know it because you're just like, mm, better check that expiration date. Uh, I, I love you, so we need to have an honest talk right now. And so let's just talk about this philosophically here. Um, there are three ways you can think about faithfulness. And really, you can ask yourself this question, what is my consistency look like in any of these three areas or three sub-aspects of belief. The first one is this, it's aim. It's aim. 
One of the first aspects of believing is you got to make sure you're aiming at the object of your belief. And so you ask the question, hey, am I consistently aiming at this object of belief? Where is my aim? Is it consistent? Am I aiming? And the axiom I want to just kind of pass on to you guys, the thing to think through is, for most of us, whenever we're getting into issues of unfaithfulness with Jesus, and it's an issue, a sub-issue of aim, the, the thing that's going on there is it's not that we're aiming too high, we're over-aiming, or aiming too low. It's that oftentimes we're just not aiming at all. You guys ever had that moment in life where you just, you're not aiming at all. You're like, I don't want to believe in Jesus today. It's too hard. Like, I know normally the satellite dish of my life, it gets readjusted when I go to church on Tuesday and I aim it at Jesus, but it's like Thursday now and I had a really bad Wednesday and uh, I just don't want to aim at Jesus, right? So one of the things, one of the things we can do to cultivate belief and faithfulness in our lives is to make sure that on a fairly consistent basis, fairly regular basis, we are doing just a heart check. Am I aiming at Jesus? That's the first step. Make sure today I'm aiming at Jesus. One of the things, ways you can cultivate or one of the ways you can practically work out this idea of aiming at Jesus is prayer. Because think about what you have to say at the very beginning of praying. Jesus, or whichever Trinitarian part you pray to, right? Father, for those of you who are charismatic, Holy Spirit, right? This is it, right? So you start off taking your heart and you're aiming it into the direction of God. God, I am praying for you. So first aspect, aim. Second one is this. It's pace. It's pace. And you're asking, what is the nature of my moving or uh, what is the speed at which my life is moving? So if you think, believing, number one, when you're born again, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's the first time you aim at Jesus, right? Jesus, I want to believe in you. Pace is I'm actually taking some steps, right? The pedometer, my spiritual pedometer is getting its step work in as I'm moving towards the object of my faith, and so the question we can ask ourselves are, what is the consistency of my walking? What, are the, what is the consistency of my stepping? Am I someone who's going, yes, but back, and yes, but back again? Here we go, right? Are you doing the kid and play dance where you're like, hey, Jesus, let me move around and come back over, right? What kind of step situation is, oh, we're good. It's good milk and my tea. Uh, you're asking, what's my step situation like? And so, again, ask. What is the consistency of my pace in moving towards this object that I'm aiming my life at? That's number two. Number three, the third aspect of it uh, is proximity. I keep three of these up here just in case that happens. Just want you to know. Pro tip. Uh, so number three, proximity. Am I moving closer to the object of my aim? So as I have believed in Jesus and now started taking some steps towards Jesus, am I getting closer to Jesus? Or am I still really, really far away? Okay, if I'm really far away, am I really aiming at Jesus? Okay, am I really taking steps? So proximity, how close am I getting to Jesus? Now, with these three sub-aspects in mind, I want to talk to you guys about the three kinds of people that you're going to meet with respect to belief. Um, and I don't, maybe this is just important to me, but I think it's helpful for you guys. You guys ever had those moments where you go, you meet somebody maybe for the first time, you're having that conversation? And you're like, hey, do you believe in Jesus? And they're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus too. You're like, cool, awesome, high five, right? We're all part of the same little group here. And then you go and you start talking further about your belief in Jesus. And they're radically different from kind of how you thought believing in Jesus would be. And so you're having that heart check moment. You're like, okay, maybe they're just a different denomination. Maybe they're from a different culture. Maybe from a different part of the United States. But man, we, 
I keep saying I believe in Jesus, and I hear them say I believe in Jesus, but their belief in Jesus is very different from my belief in Jesus. Like, right? I remember being in my college and young adults years, and I had this conversation with my wife and I had this conversation with this girl we knew, and we were like, hey, we love seeing you on Sunday. Would you like to come to our young adult thing kind of in midweek? And she's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's probably too much for me. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, you know, you're busy. We have this small group. You want to join us in the small group? She's like, no, 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 no. Okay, cool. Well, we got this mission trip we're going on. I know you got some free time. You want to go on this mission trip? She was like, no, I don't want to go on a mission trip. And so about the fifth or sixth awkward conversation, we, we just kind of were like, hey, I notice we see you on church, church on Sundays, but it's not, it's not all the time. Not that we're taking attendance. You don't want to be that person, right? <laughs> and, and we invite you to come to the small group. You said no, which is okay. And we invite you to this party. You said no. And we invite you to the mission trip. And you said no. And I, I just help me out here. Like, so kind of what's the situation? And she just stopped us, and she was like, listen, I'm not really a go-Jesus person. And I was like, okay, um, so what kind of person would you say you are? Uh, like, how does this all work? And she's like, listen, I go to church. I'm a good-paying customer. I feel like I put in my time. Me and God have a situation and understanding. When I get to heaven, he's going to let me in for good behavior, right? I just feel like we have an arrangement here. And we were like, Okay, you know, you guys know what I'm talking about when you have some of those honest conversations and you got to go, I, I don't have categories for understanding why some people who call themselves Christians behave in one way that seems really smelly. And I'm not saying I'm the, the, the unsmelliest person out there, but you know what I'm talking about, especially in social media settings where there are people who are like, I'm a Christian, and let me tell you why Christians hate these people over here and want to marginalize them. And you're like, whoa, like where, where did all this come from? I thought you were a Christian. You're like the Bible. And they're like, don't bring the Bible in here. I just want to hate people, but I'm a Christian. You're like, what is happening right now? Right? Okay, I think you guys, y'all are smelling what I'm cooking here. Okay, so I want to give you, I want to think about belief in terms of these categories to help you maybe make sense of some of these relationships. And there's really three kinds of people you're going to meet as it relates to faithfulness and belief. And here's the first one. The first one is this. Uh, it's the person who, although they may be moving towards the object, or they may be moving, and they may be close, but they're just not aiming. Do you, have you ever met anybody like that? Like if this is truth of Jesus, and they're doing a lot of moving, they're like, yeah, look at me. I'm around Jesus, right? Cool, 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 right? And they're close. They're not far away. They're really close. But you realize they're not aiming at Jesus. And you just kind of have this moment, you're like, if you keep moving, I'm pretty sure you're going to move away from Jesus. And I'll describe exactly who this is. These are kids who are born into Christian homes. These are kids who go to Christian schools. These are pastor's kids and missionary kids. Okay? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, how, you know, any of you just want to, you went to private schools, Christian schools growing up? Okay? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, man. You're like in witness protection. You're like, I don't want to mention that. Sorry. My bad. <laughs> My bad, sorry. No, 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 you, you went to public schools. It's cool, it's cool. You went to public schools. It's cool. You, you, um, right? You were a part of a homeschool co-op. You were around Christian kids. You grew up with them. And as you grew up, you realized, like, I, we were in church, but now they're not. Like, what happened? Maybe that at some point they did a social media post where they said, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. And you couldn't put your finger on it. And then it dawned on you. They may have been moving around Jesus. And they have, may, have been, may have been born in proximity to Jesus. But the whole of their life wasn't ever aiming at Jesus. And so as soon as they could have the freedom uh, away from their parents, they were like, yeah, here we go. And now they're way over here. And they're like, but you, you were born really close to truth. How did you end up over here? They were never aiming. 
No one is born into the kingdom. You're only born again into the kingdom. And at some point, you've got to look at the claims of Jesus, and you've got to decide to aim your life towards him. It's the first step of following Jesus is to aim your life and to begin believing in him. A lot of our friends who are born into Christian families and who are born into Christian culture and who are born in the South, and they know all the Christian language, and they understand that there's this kind of true thing out there, that's all well and good. But until they aim their lives at him, they're never going to be near him for the long term. They're going to be really inconsistent. That's the first kind of person you're going to meet. The second one is this. It's the person who may be aiming, and they may be close, but they're just, they're not moving. It's like, they're like this. I believe in Jesus. This is good enough. Right? You know people like that? Like maybe they're, maybe they're born into a Christian home, and they made a profession of faith, and they're like, mm-hmm. But you don't see a lot of faithfulness in their life, primarily because they're just afraid. Because they're just like, don't take another step closer because you may blow it. Right? Uh, right? You, you see people who are like this all the time. They, they have some kind of fear about doing anything because they're so afraid of works righteousness or some theological concept or some religious concept. They feel like they're going to blow it. And we know people like this all the time too. What's the problem? The problem here is that they understand who Jesus is. But they don't understand what Jesus is going to do for them. They're still thinking, it's on me. I've got to do that stuff there. And the thing that the Spirit of God wants to do is to produce faithfulness, to help them understand that Jesus is this faithful person and that he will draw them towards himself. People don't have to work their way to the cross. The cross is going to work its way towards us, and it's going to pull us there. It's the power of God's love. That's the second person. The third person is this. It's the person who is aiming at Jesus. And they're taking steps towards Jesus. But it just feels like they're not getting any closer, right? It's like as soon as they, you know, it's almost kind of like tag here. This is Jesus. And they're like, there he is. I can see him, guys. I can see him. And then, oh, okay. And they're like, yeah. And then, oh, right. And it just feels like you're never right here up on G. You're just way back. You're always chasing him at a distance. You're doing your heart check. Am I aiming? Yes. And am I taking steps? Yes, but it just feels like I just am not super close, as close as possibly could be. And you know what kind of person that is? That's all of us. Because the only time we're going to be super close to Jesus is when we're in heaven. If you're right here, you're dead, okay? Okay? And here's why I say that. Because I think some of us freak ourselves out a little bit. We wake up and we have a great devotional time. And man, it just feels like we are just so close to Jesus. And then we go to sleep and we wake up and it seems like he's way over there. And you're like, oh, man, I thought I just could get there and I would just stay there. It just seems like this whole Christian life is this life of perseverance where I got to keep striving and striving. And I see Jesus a little bit and I'm, I'm, I'm gaining my consistency. And, and I'm definitely aiming at him. I'm telling him every day, Jesus, I love you. And then I don't hear. I keep praying and he's not answering my prayers. And I keep singing worship songs, but it's not changing the way I feel. And you conclude from that because you're not just right up riding in the buggy like a kid being pushed around by your parent at a grocery store. You're concluding from this that God must not love you. Faithfulness is not being right here with Jesus. It's continuing to walk after him, even though it seems like we're not exactly with him. 
It's continuing to aim your life at the object of truth who gives you this consistent love and to demonstrate this kind of love back to him and to everyone around you. This is the Christian life until you die. It's just walking around all the time. It's just going, hey man, Jesus, I really wish you'd slow down so I could catch up, but I see you're trying to move me out of my comfort zone and grow me into somewhere I've never been before because you have bigger dreams for me and bigger plans for me, and you want me to get where I'm not at yet, so I'm going to keep following you, and you're going to take me on this grand adventure, and then at one day, maybe when I'm old, maybe when I'm young, you're going to go, that's far enough for you, and then you're going to be like, wee, and that's heaven. That's the promised land. That's when you don't smell inconsistent anymore. You smell great, which is why in the Old Testament, whenever they describe the promised land, it's a land flowing with honey and milk. It's like, when we all get to heaven, it's going to smell like perfect milk. And you're going to smell like perfect milk. It's going to be like you grew up in Wisconsin, right? And some of you don't get that joke, but Adam Meyer grew up in Wisconsin, and he's just like, that is truth. <laughs> it's a land flowing with milk and honey. So don't freak out, y'all. If you are aiming at Jesus, and you are walking towards Jesus, but you aren't riding with Jesus way up close, that's called life. So keep striving and keep moving towards him. And just understand, at some point, Jesus is going to tell you, you're doing a good job. Keep going. Keep going. That's called faithfulness. Um, I have this pastor friend. Uh, well, he's not my friend, but I've kind of spent some time with him. And ugh. does somebody want this? No, just kidding. Um, I have this pastor friend named Tommy. And our median adults pastor is a guy named Daryl. Uh, he's, um, he's a chaplain. And he went through this discipleship program with Pastor Tommy. And he asked him one time, uh, you know, Pastor Tommy's in his late 60s, early 70s. He's in Texas. He said, Pastor Tommy, uh, what would you say is the mark of a really amazing Christian? You know, because we're all young pastors. We're trying to figure out how we can be the best ministers we can be. We're trying to train all y'all to be the best ministers you can be in Orlando. So we're curious about these kinds of ideas. And Tommy just gave him this really great line. Again, this is a 60, almost 70-year-old man. He said, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought the mark of a great Christian was someone who could preach really well, who could get up and hold a room and could speak eloquently. So that's what I strive to do in my 20s, to become a really good speaker. And then my 30s, I realized it's not that. It's the person who can really develop leaders and volunteers in their church. And so I started focusing on that and making that was the whole time in my 30s. And then in my 40s, I realized, well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's someone who can really grow a giant megachurch. And so I spent all my time working on that, trying to make our church bigger and bigger with more programs. And then I got to my 50s and I thought, oh, maybe it's not those. Maybe it's the person who can really love their staff well. So I devoted most of my 50s to loving my staff well. And then I hit my 60s and I saw megachurches come and go. And I saw good speakers come and go. And I saw uh, volunteer leadership development people come and go. And I saw staff culture people come and go. And I spent my time in these breakfast joints all over Texas seeing these old people, old men and old women, who were just faithful to the end. And I've come to realize that the chief marker of the most powerful Christians in the world is faithfulness to the end. Guys, what Orlando needs 
from us is not more good speakers. They got plenty of good speakers in Orlando. Your friends and neighbors and coworkers don't need, need people who can develop leaders or who can build out programs or who can become staff in churches and local nonprofits and ministries. What they need most from all of us is people who are faithful to the end, who are believing in this object and continually taking steps towards that object of Jesus. And what Jesus says he's going to do in us is he's going to love us with a consistent love. And he's going to produce in us a love for everyone around us, for his glory and for their good and for our good. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I thank you for our friends here today. And I thank you that we're not dead yet because it means we have more work to do. We get to take more steps towards you. So my prayer for all of us in this room is that you would mold in us this fruit of the spirit called faithfulness that you would help us to learn to live with an increasing consistent behavior of our love, that we would not be smelly Christians to people around us, but that we would be increasingly great smelling milk of Christians to the people around us. And I know that seems like a really weird analogy, but I think you get it. May, may the table and the people who gather here be representatives of the land flowing with honey and milk for your glory, for our good, and the good of this city that we love. It's called Orlando. It's in your name we pray. Amen.